Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're continuing in our series of Philippians this morning, chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 which lays out a key way that believers in Jesus are called to distinguish themselves from the world. How God would have his people set themselves apart in a compelling and an attractive way that leads other people to him. That's what this passage is about. And the answer that Paul gives um, to how, what this looks like, what we should do to bring it about is surprising. It was surprising to me. At first glance, Paul in this passage seems to be making a a bit much of a little thing. He's calling us to completely be done and eradicate from our lives something that we all feel a little bit entitled to, that is to grumble, to complain. I mean, what's wrong with a little complaining? So I, when I'm with my friends at work, blow off a little steam about how annoying my wife's been lately. I mean, what's the big deal? Everybody does that. So I'm, I'm, I'm a wife and mother, and I get together with the other moms at play group, and I complain for just a minute, just a, little, just a little short minute about my husband. What's the big deal? It's not the unpardonable sin. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child, and I'm at school with my classmates, and uh, or I'm a teenager. Let's, this is more likely a teenager thing. And I grumble and complain about how unreasonable and unfair my parents are being towards me lately, how hard they are on me. I mean, it's, what's wrong with that? I mean, it's true. And truth is often an excuse that we use to justify our grumbling. We don't generally think of grumbling as, as bad or at least not that bad. We certainly don't regard it as something that completely undermines and invalidates our entire Christian profession, or it strikes at the vitals of the faith. And it's not like it's on the same level as adultery or murder, right? Well, that's actually what Scripture likens it to, and that's what we want to see this morning. We come to Scripture not to have our thinking confirmed, our natural mind confirmed, but to have our minds transformed and renewed so that we can prove what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. That's what we're here to do. And we need to have our minds transformed, brothers and sisters, about the true nature of grumbling and disputing. And may God do that for us this morning as we turn to his word. Let's look together at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing we want to see from this prohibition on uh, grumbling and disputing, is that it is not like out of nowhere. Paul doesn't just drop it in. Oh yeah, and here's this too. It's it's very much connected to everything he's been saying up to this point for many verses. Paul's been focused in this section, in the book of Philippians, in his letter, uh, um, on the Philippians affairs. And his ultimate concern through this section has been their unity. He wants to see them stand and strive and live lives of and that are free of fear of persecution together, together. Togetherness is an is a emphasis, and unity is an emphasis through this passage. And for the sake of that unity and togetherness, he urges in chapter 2 in the early verses on, on his friends there the things that promote that togetherness and that unity among them, a humble attitude of mind, 
that shows itself in an unselfish preferring of others and a looking out for others' interests, not just one's own. Paul goes on to explain in the verses after that, verses 5 to 8 of chapter 2, that this was the very attitude that Jesus himself had as he, in obedience to God, humbled himself from the highest heaven to the lowest cross for you and me. And the attitude of mine um, and the example that, G- that God, has, the Father, has put his everlasting stamp of approval on by exalting Jesus to the highest place above all things. So Paul's point up to that point is this. Concern that we can, when we conform our attitudes to that of Jesus Christ and behave towards others in sacrificial service as he did, that is how we render to God the obedience that he requires of us. That is what it looks like to follow God in obedience. That is the way that we fearfully and with trembling work out our salvation, that he, by his spirit, is marvelously working and willing within us. That's what this looks like. So this is very important stuff. It's like the most important stuff. And Paul's been putting a lot of stress on it. And now as he brings his appeal to unity to a close, this is the sort of wrapping up of, uh, of this section of the letter, he adds this final prohibition on something that is completely antithetical to everything that he's been trying to get across and bring about among the Philippians. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. What's so important about grumbling and disputing? And how is it connected to unity among believers? Well, let's dig into it a bit and see if we can't discover. Notice, first of all, that Paul doesn't say, do most things without grumbling and disputing. He doesn't say, you really should, guys, complain a little bit less. He doesn't say, try your best not to grumble if you can. He says, no exceptions are put on this. There's no, there's, this is an absolute prohibition. He doesn't take it back, issue any disclaimers. In the Greek grammar, it's even more emphatic. All things do without grumbling and disputing. So grumbling and disputing are things, whatever those things are, those are things that, that we are never allowed as Christians to do under any circumstances. What are those words? What does he mean by those words, grumbling and disputing? Grumbling, which is gagusmas in Greek, is kind of an automatopoeic. Is that how you say it? Automatopoeic word. It's a word that sounds like what it is. It's sort of our, an equivalent word in English is murmur. Murmur. <laughs> sounds like what it is. I guess to the Greek ear, gagusmas sounds like murmur. Like, so what it, what it, that kind of quiet undertone gurgling sound is what the word actually means. And that is, its focus is first of all in the heart, inward. It's something that happens inside of us before it comes out. Just as Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. This word literally means a secret displeasure in the heart and a sullen discontent that gives rise to criticism. How common is, is a spirit of grumbling and complaining? How common is it? It's very common. Young people, students, how much of the conversation among you, among yourselves at school, consists in complaining? Stop for a minute and just think about it. How much of the words spoken are complaining words, grumbling words? Adults in the workplace, how much is disputing and complaining and grumbling a part of the exchange of conversation and words among people that work together? Moms at home, bless you, you don't have a peer to talk to most of the day. How much of your inner self-talk consists in complaining and grumbling about any number of things or pressures on your life? If we had a complete transcript of our day, word for word, and all of our conversations, or maybe of our week, and we redacted from it everything that wasn't a complaint, how many words would be on the page? Why do we grumble and complain? 
and dispute. The habit of grumbling arises from a spirit of discontent. We grumble when we feel that we are not getting what we deserve. I deserve better is the assumption at the heart of all grumbling. Grumbling's what happens when we put ourselves at the center of the universe and make life out to be all about us. When invariably life happens and we, and, and we don't get, we're disappointed, we don't get what we want somehow on some level, when we want it, just as we want it, we naturally grumble. That's what we do. And that reveals, that tendency reveals our innate self-centeredness. That we have positioned ourselves at the center of all things. That the world is, in fact, supposed to revolve around us. That's our assumption. It's deeply imprinted into our sinful hearts. Who is at the center of your life? Are you a grumbler? Then you are at the center of your life. That's the nature of grumbling. That's what it reveals. Let's look at this word disputing. What does this mean? This word is also a kind of inward word, a word that starts inside before it comes out. It describes the act of deliberating or reasoning with oneself. So it's like the inner thought logic of complaining. The actual logic of it, the things we say to ourselves and just to justify ourselves. The word can be used positively or negatively in Greek literature of the time. It's used both ways. But in the New Testament, it's almost always used in its evil sense. In this, the sense of inner rationalizations or arguments that are an expression of the self-will a godless frame of mind, godless reasoning, self-will, self-rule. So whereas grumbling arises from the heart that says, I deserve better, the, dis the sinful disputing mind says, I know better. The disputer looks at life and its circumstances and says, well, if I was in charge, if I were the king, that is not the way I would do it. Here's the way things ought to be. So a, a disputer is very able to explain why this or that circumstance of life is unjust or unfair, why such and such a person has got me all wrong or has done me wrong, why this or that command of God is unreasonable or misunderstood or misapplied, why I am the exception to that particular rule. It might be sin for another person, but in my case, it's actually completely justified. It's actually a sign of my righteousness. A disputing mind is capable of, of arguing itself in, in, out of God's commands. It can give all the reasons quickly. It's ready with all the excuses and the justifications. It focuses its disputes, its logic, its, its, its attack on things, on circumstances, on people, because it's not just going to come out and be irreverent to itself and say, God, I am against you. No, it focuses on circumstances, on the pains of life, on the struggles of life. Maybe even like the, like, uh, the commands of God, the sort of things that are out here that we're hearing and being, are being talked about are more objective. But behind all of those things is what? A personal God who rules the world, who has brought all things into existence and had ordered all things in your life and all circumstances of your life. According to his good intention and will and pleasure. So behind all the things that we dispute about and complain about, there is God. And so we, the disputer and the grumbler carries on his war with life, ultimately against God himself. Are you a disputer? Sometimes when we're preaching, we look at you and your faces and we see some kind of look on it that's sort of like skeptical or, um, what's a good word for it? What? Dubious. That's a good word, yeah. And my in initial instinct isn't to think, oh, there's a disputer. It's usually to think, I must not be making myself clear. I've confused you. And I'm sure half the time that's the case. But not all the time. I think 
many of us sit there and dispute with the Word of God as it's being taught to us. And we're finding the loopholes or we're finding the reason why I don't have to feel that. That wasn't presented quite right. You know, that's like, you know, okay, that's putting a little bit too much weight over here when it should be more balanced. <laughs> I think that's, that's a disputing mind. It's seeking to evade and escape the implications of God's demands in our life. And I think that many of us are guilty of it. Now, not all argument and debate, not all reasonings or, or questions or complaints even are sinful. Some questions arise from a humble and a submitted spirit. And there is a place in the church, in family, in the workplace, in the political and social sphere for constructive feedback and argumentation and wise appeal. Okay? There's even a place for a type of complaining in our relationship with God. And the Psalms show us what that can look like. David in Psalm 13, and this is just one of many examples from the prayer life of David, he asks, how long, O Lord? How long? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Are those just veiled accusations against God? Judgments of God? You're doing me wrong, God? Are they disputes and grumblings of the sort that Paul is telling us not to have? Or are they something different? No, there's something different. There's a place for this kind of bringing to God our complaints and our felt desire for him and how we're suffering as he seems in our experience to be withholding himself from us, delaying his answer. But how, really, how many of our complaints and our disputes that we carry on inside of ourselves really spring from this place of trust where we, like David, we know that God is good and God is there and God is hearing me and that he is what I need. And he, I desire nothing besides him on heaven and earth. Lord, show me your face to me. How many of our prayers and our thoughts and our the inner logic of our hearts and complaint really spring from that place of trust and submitted trust to his rule in our lives? I don't think very many. Our minds are affected by the fall every bit as much as our hearts. And we are capable, perfectly capable, very, very capable of arguing ourselves out from under the sovereign rule of God in our lives. Out of submission to him, out of a life of trust and surrender to his commands. And by doing that, what do we do? We are ultimately accusing God of evil or of getting it wrong, getting us wrong, of doing us wrong. Are you a disputer? It's not hard to see why in an appeal to unity, Paul would warn the Philippians away from a grumbling and a disputing attitude. The heart attitudes that give rise to those things, the assumptions of the heart that they rest upon, that from which they spring, also give birth to other things, wars and conflicts and strivings and quarrels of all sorts. Every form of evil and conflict springs from these assumptions in our hearts. I want you to look at a passage from James chapter 4, the first four verses of James, which are very helpful to remember. This is a place to go to, to rem remind yourselves where all the troubles, why, where war in the Middle East comes from. Where does it all spring from? James 4, 1 to 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires, things you want that are war with, at war within your members, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? 
because you ask with wrong motives so that you will spend it on your pleasures. You are at the center of your, and your desires are paramount. And you look at all things, all circumstances, and other people, and you think, that's not fair, that's not right. I want that thing. I should have had that thing. And you even say, well, okay, God's the one who can give me all those things, so I pray to God for that thing that I want. And because I don't, and God is kind at times, James is saying, to withhold it because he knows that our desires are not right. All we want is to satisfy ourselves. We are the most important thing. We're not submitted to him and his will. Now listen, verse four is very key. Here's the accusation for those who reason that way and behave that way. You adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does that show? Grumbling and disputing arise when we put ourselves at the center and those Things give birth in our lives and among us to quarrels and conflicts, to wars and murders and fightings. And such things as as all this are tantamount to spiritual adultery, abandoning our husband, rejecting his rule. God is the husband in the equation. The church is the bride. And the church and people that behave this way, that live out of this place, this that put themselves in the center and are rejecting God's rule and are guilty of adultery spiritually. And this is the stuff, James says, of worldliness. This is how the world operates. This is the essence of worldliness. To orient yourself as the center and reject God's rule and provision in your life. Godliness, on the other hand, as Paul has been showing in this passage, consists in humbly subordinating our will and desires to God's for his glory and others' good, putting him at the center, submitting ourselves to his will, and putting others before us and seeking their good. That promotes unity among people and every good thing, and the ultimate result for us is contentment and joy and the hope of ultimate exaltation with Jesus. That's Paul's message. It's actually his big message throughout the book of Philippians. Doesn't that sound nice? Peace and love and joy? (laughs) Sounds nice. This is the recipe. Grumbling and disputing are completely antithetical to this way of life the way of a Christian. And this is why uh, Paul is telling us that we have to be completely done with these things and to show the seriousness of his call away from them, the call to give up these things. He goes on to add three big and weighty reasons why being done with grumbling and disputing is essential for us as believers. The first of these reasons is this one. That by doing what God commands without grumbling and disputing, we show ourselves to be his true children. You see this in verse 15. He says, do all things without grumbling and complaining so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Now Paul is making this particular point against the backdrop of the sins of ancient Israel. And we know this is what he's got in mind because the words he's using, the, word, the terms grumbling and disputing themselves, and also these terms, a crooked and perverse generation from verse 15, show that he has Old Testament Israel's example in mind. The only other place that Paul uses that particular Greek word, grumbling, is in 1 Corinthians 10, when he is rehearsing the history of Israel's bad example and apostasy and grumbling. I want to rehearse that same history this morning, and I've got way too many pages of examples to, to cover, and so it's wonderful that Phil has planned the scripture lessons, and we actually had a little accident of communication that resulted in two Old Testament readings this morning, which were both perfectly suited to the example of Israel. 
Their example, this was a people that was chosen by God, called out of the world, separated from the world to be his holy people, to live under his sovereign rule, commands and covenant and provision, to have his, and enjoy his protection, to inherit a land of promise. This is this people, chosen of God. And how did they behave themselves under God's rule? Well, every turn, the example is grumbling, disputing, grumbling and disputing. Before they left Egypt, they're under bondage in Pharaoh. They call out, God sends them a deliverer in Moses. Moses shows up and says, God's going to deliver you, and he's going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And that results as Pharaoh doesn't immediately buy into that. <laughs> it doesn't just immediately come about. And they grumble. And what they say to Moses is, hey, look, Pharaoh's treating us harsher now because of your leadership. And you, it's like they actually say this. You have put a sword into his hand to kill us. That was their first major grumbling moment. And it just continues over and over again from there. They get to the Red Sea, and the, Red sea, the, the armies are behind them, and the water's in front of them. There's nowhere to go. What do they do? They grumble against Moses. Have you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? And they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble some more. They grumble when they're thirsty. God gives them water. They grumble when they're hungry. God gives them manna. They grumble so much that God names places after their grumbling. All the way to Sinai, they grumble. When they get to Sinai, Moses is gone a little bit too long. They grumble, and that gives birth to idolatry. They say, hey, he, we don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, you make us a God that we can worship. And they do. Because their grumbling persists from here, God begins to discipline them for it severely, sending plagues and judgments upon them. And they persist even more and further all the way to the promised land. And... They, they send in the spies into the promised land, and the spies come back with the report that, yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey, but there are, unfortunately, a bunch of big guys there, some giants. And they grumble. And they say, it would be better, as we read, it would be better to have died back in Egypt or to die in the wilderness. And so God brings on the judgment that you're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. That's your punishment for your grumbling and your unbelief. And a point that it's made very clearly by God himself is while they're grumbling against their circumstances, they're grumbling against their leaders, God says they're grumbling against me. Me. Their Lord, their God. Paul makes another strong connection to Israel's history with his, word, his use of the words crooked and perverse generation, verse 15. That phrase originates with Moses. In his final song, his final statement, the final of the final statements of Moses of the, of the, concerning the people of Israel, this people who he's had to put up with their complaining, their rejection of him and of God over and over and over again, he sings a song writes a song, the end of his ministry, to kind of encapsulate it all. And this is what he says in the middle of it. It's from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They, these people, have acted corruptly toward him, towards God. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Man, do we want that written over our lives, our church? These people were called out to be his children, to be God's children, to submit to his care and leadership and discipline and provision in their lives. And over and over again, they reject it. And how do they reject it? Most commonly, by grumbling, by disputing 
And Paul very clearly is importing all of that history right into this text with these terms. And he would know it well. And he's saying, my brothers and sisters in Philippi have nothing to do with grumbling and disputing. This is out of character with children of God. This, you don't want to be like the Old Testament Israelites. Don't be like them. Be something different and prove yourself by being different, by having these things absent from your life. Prove yourself to be true children of God, innocent, blameless. Are you a grumbler, a disputer? These are extremely inconsistent, utterly inconsistent with a claim to being a child of God. We are to live out of a different nature. A a nature that expresses trust, contentment, a submission to God, a willingness to suffer, trusting that he is going to bring us through it, that he is going to answer our desires and give them in good time, in a good way. He's going to meet our needs. Even though it looks like the world is falling apart, even though I'm suffering and in lots of pain and life is not fun, God is there. I trust him. Whatever I have and endure is from his hand. And it's a good hand. Second thing that Paul says the second big argument, weighty thing that he brings in to show how horrible grumbling and disputing is, is he says that by doing what God commands without grumbling and disputing, this is how we shine the light of Jesus into a dark world. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. So, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear... You, the true children of God, appear in this dark place among the crooked and perverse people as lights in the world, holding fast, or you could translate it, holding forth the word of life. So a grumbling-free, disputing-free life is not only proof of our authenticity as born-again, changed, transformed children of God, But this is a powerful way that we testify to the goodness of God in this world and spread the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness. By not having this characterize our lives, we don't operate out of this way, this mode of existence where we're at the center and we grumble about every little thing. This is how the world lives. We're different now because of the grace of God. The world is in darkness It's alienated from God and hostile toward God. A spirit of grumbling and disputing is part and parcel of of worldliness, of the world's operating system. An operating system that is alienated from God and hostile towards God. And the fruit of that is everywhere in the world. We are called out of that darkness into the marvelous light of God, made to be lights ourselves made to shine in the darkness. And how do we do that? Apparently, according to Paul, by not grumbling and complaining. Isn't that amazing? He's putting a lot of emphasis on these, this prohibition. This is how he says, we shine as lights in the darkness. We don't participate in a spirit of grumbling. We recognize that for what it is. Rebellion against God, fruit of darkness and unbelief. We don't take part in that. We rather bless and encourage and build up even when harshly treated ourselves, even when we're the recipients of grumbling and complaining. We don't respond with the same spirit. When people go around, uh, are around us and they are complaining about something or someone, the boss, the coworker, the president, the administration, the government, not only do we not join in, we give ourselves to the calling to shine forth as lights and hold forth the word of life. We try and purify the conversation 
by saying something respectful of authority, kind and sympathetic about the person being complained about. We work to be peacemakers. We try and turn it into an opportunity to talk about the goodness of God and to testify to our trust and submission of his, of his good purposes in all things, even hard things. When in faith we don't complain and don't participate in the complaining world around us, we shine. But we shine much brighter still when we work against that spirit of grumbling and complaining around us by blessing and edifying and testifying to God's goodness instead. Now, we've talked a lot over the last year and a half about evangelism, and we've imagined, we know, and I think most of us feel very weak and kind of a timid and overwhelmed and afraid about that, how challenging it is. And it is challenging, and it's not easy to do this and to be done with the spirit of grumbling and complaining, but... What I'm just talking about right here is something all of us can do and it's not that hard. And you don't have to feel like I have to present everything (laughs) all at once. I can shine the light of Jesus Christ into a dark place simply by trying to change the spirit of the conversation. This is a spirit of complaining. How can I change that by adding something other? Not changing the subject even, but by turning it towards sympathy, turning it towards respect in a kind and gentle way. All of us can do that, and it's powerful. It shines the brightness of the gospel into situations, circumstances, relationships. Well, those are two very weighty reasons not to grumble and dispute that it proves our genuineness as children of God and it causes us to shine as lights in the world. And Paul's final reason that he adds is this, and he saved it appropriately for the end, but it's still a real reason, that by doing all that we do without grumbling and disputing, we make our leaders happy. You can make Paul happy. He says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, verse 16, halfway through, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. When I get to heaven and we're all standing at the judgment throne, says Paul, I want you to be there and I want you to be blameless and innocent children of God, lights in the world, and I want to have just this opportunity to rejoice that I wasn't wasting my time. that God was really up to something true. And the way that you can do that, and the way you can get there, and the way you can prove my labors among you to be genuine and not vain, not empty, not a waste of time and effort, is by being grumble-free and disputing-free in your life. Isn't that amazing? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I don't know the rest of the song. But I know this. The obedience that isn't without grumbling and complaining or disputing is not really obedience. Because God, even though if our actions are, are performed appropriately, even though under the, under the an admonition to do what's right, we manage to pull it off externally. Unless we pull it off genuinely from our hearts, cheerfulness unto the Lord as an expression of our trust of him and his goodness, then it isn't real obedience, as any parent knows. You want to make your pastors and elders happy? Want to give them a reason to exult in the day of Jesus Christ? Give up grumbling and disputing. Children, you want to make your mom and dad happy? Make them proud? Make them rejoice in God that, wow, he's blessing their parenting? (laughs) Give up grumbling and disputing. want to take a real quick look at these delightful last couple of verses just so we see what's going on there. 
Paul in these last 17 and 18 is exhibiting towards them in a really beautiful way, his friends in Philippi, the, same, the things he's been exhorting them to do. And he does it with one more, one further allusion to the Old Testament, to the sacrificial system. So what he says in verse 17 is, but even if I, Paul, am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So what I want you to notice there is that Paul's sacrifice, his labors for their good, his imprisonment in Rome, his apostleship and everything that he does is simply a little drink offering in his view, poured out upon the sacrifice of their faith the burnt offering, the animal sacrifice. And in the Old Testament system, those are all real sacrifices and pleasing to God. But the priority is definitely on the animal sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? Just this little thing, just a little indication of Paul's own humility and sense of himself. He's, he's, as he looks at them and the things he's calling them to and he thinks he trusts that they're going to do in obedience because God's truly within them and he's going to complete the work he's begun in them. He says, he calls that the main thing. And his sacrifice, whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's just this extra honoring poured out upon it. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> and then he also returns in closing to the theme of joy. Joy is something that Paul has found for himself there in prison in Rome, and he shared that joy in his testimony to the Philippians early in the letter, and he's promised to come and see them again if he gets released, quote, for their progress and joy in the faith. And in his absence, he's calling them to the things that promote unity, that promote peace, that promote joy. And so he says, Give yourself to these things. I've shared my joy with you. Now I want to I hear that you're listening to me and you're li- abounding in these things so you can share your joy with me. Obedience to the Lord. Humility. Loving one another. Results in joy. God is a good God. He's not a stingy God. When he says, do this or do that, the promise is life and abundant life, blessed life and joy. Two quick applications and we'll be done. We need to be done with grumbling and disputing. Easier said than done though, isn't it? How do we put these things to death in us? Well, we start by acknowledging that they are sin, and that they're sins that we are guilty of. We are grumblers and disputers, and that's not a little problem. That's not an okay thing. That's not a tolerable thing. That is something completely out of character with the, the work that God is doing in us that we profess and claim for ourselves to be His children. It's not a little thing. We confess that to God, we acknowledge our, the pervasiveness in our, of it in our lives and we confess it as sin. We bring it to God humbly and we say, please wash us and forgive us. We recognize that Jesus died for horrible sins like this. Would you please forgive me and change me? We remember who we are, that we are dependent creatures. We are not the center of the universe. We depend upon the Lord and we trust him. Lord, work that trust into my life. By nature, I'm a sinner and a rebel. We remember that, and we remember that God has made us something different than that in Jesus Christ by his spirit, that he's given us a new nature, a higher calling. We are saints. We are his children. We are his people set apart to be different from the world. We remember his promises. Remember his promises that he's held out to us in the midst of trials and tribulations, and they give us joy and hope.
promises of God are vast. And when we lay a hold of them, they will help us see the troubles of life and the pains and the disappointments of life in perspective. And the perspective is they become, in Paul's words, momentary, light afflictions that are up to some good. They have a point. They are creating in us, what are the words? An eternal weight of glory. God is fitting us for heaven. He's up to good things, even with our trials. And we can have good cheer and maintain hope and not grumble and complain in the midst of them. Lastly, parents, don't allow your children to grumble and dispute with you. Very important, parents. Don't allow your children to grumble and dispute. First of all, by not giving yourself to grumbling and disputing. Setting an example before them of godliness in this way. Parents, we grumble and dispute a lot. If children are always hearing us grumble and dispute, it really goes against any attempts on our part to have them be different. What do we grumble and dispute about? People, circumstances, duties. One father was telling me between services that he and other men that he knows and loves have a habit of complaining about the government, complaining about taxes. Complaining is not good. It is evil. And if this is what our children hear us doing, it's, not, it's going to work against what we're trying to accomplish in them. Okay? We need to give up complaining and disputing ourselves. But don't allow them to grumble and dispute with you. Teach them not to. Discipline them patiently for this. This is in their nature. Their sin nature. This is the operating system of the flesh. And you, have, you can't expect a three-year-old to just like, boom, because you gave him one swat be different. You got to take the long view, but take the long view and work consistently, daily, diligently to help your children have a different attitude and outlook on life where they know that that's not good. And I don't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. I don't want to do that. Teach your children not to dispute or complain. Lastly, and this is hard, parents, parents, please, don't coddle your children. Don't coddle your children. When they come home and complain about their teachers, which they will, when they come home and they complain about their friends or other kids in their class, the people in their youth group, their, when they complain about whatever they complain about, and they come to you, don't tolerate it. Or rather, don't encourage it. Don't say, don't lean in and be like, tell me more, as some of us do. Even when their teacher is a pill, it's the worst thing you can do to affirm them in their complaint. I love what Max's mother did for him when he was a kid, Pastor Max. I got to hear this testimony recently. He came home as a 10-year-old, I think, one day, and he complained to his mom, Mom, I don't have any friends. You know what she said? Son, if you don't have any friends, that's your fault. That's good parenting. That's right down the middle of what I'm talking about. That is reorienting your child to the fact that they, are, in fact, are not the center of the universe. And if they're going to have friends, they need to bring something to the table. <laughs> you know? Friendship's mutual. That mother had good instincts. Where do those instincts go? 
like been lost generationally or something. We are a generation of coddlers of our children. And so we're raising a generation of grumblers and complainers. Parents, you're raising the next generation of this church. Let's work, please work, by not coddling your children, not confirming them in their complaining and their grumbling spirits. Please work to raise up a good generation to come that has a good orientation on life, a good expectations, a good basic sense that, okay, you know what? I'm just one little guy here, I'm not the center of this room. This the whole situation doesn't resolve around me or revolve around me and my ideas and my desires and my wants. We got to work together. And we ought to work together under the rule of God. Don't leave it, parents, to pastors and elders to try to undo 20 years of coddling. It's way too late and it's exhausting. Okay? And don't let me coddle my children. That's it. That's the sermon. May God help us to be done with grumbling and disputing. Isn't it sobering to see from this part of God's word how significant this is? We don't think of it like we should. We don't, have, we don't put the weight on it that, we, that God puts on it. It really is rebellion. Let's not persist in it. Let's seek God to change. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. And that you would help us to change our ways. I pray that your Holy Spirit would... Not grow weary of our grumbling. Be patient with us, Lord. We do ask, Lord, that you would change us and that you would renew a right spirit within us. That we would remember that we are small and sinful and don't deserve your mercy, but have an abundance of it in so many ways. Give us eyes to see and rejoice in your goodness, put a song in our heart in place of our grumbling. and Help us to learn, even in the midst of great sorrow and difficulty and disappointment in life, to rejoice in your, in your steadfast love. May we know it. May we feel it. May we live out of it, Lord, and be lights in the darkness and be your true children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.